I'm Sarah Lerner. And I'm Dave Price, and this is the Teachers Unify podcast. On this episode, we're going to hear from Katie Munoz about her work as a reporter for WLRN, the NPR affiliate in Miami, her work covering the events of 214, trauma-informed reporting, and other projects she's working on. So I would like to welcome my friend, who is also a reporter, Katie Munoz, to our little show. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. Wow, it's an honor to be your friend, Sarah. (laughs) You're very sweet. (laughs) So before we get into the big stuff, we like to start with the smaller stuff, which really isn't that small. So we were just talking off air about some of your background, but I would love it if you would share with everyone um, like what your college experience was like, what your journalism background is, how long you've been working in journalism, all of that. Yeah. Um, I knew I wanted to major in journalism right away at the beginning of college. I didn't know what I was going to do with it. Um, I just knew that's where I wanted to start. So I majored in journalism at the University of Florida, go Gators, Um, (laughs) had to throw that in there. But I, all throughout college, I started working at WUFT, the North Central Florida NPR affiliate station. And I started hosting Morning Edition and producing All Things Considered there. And then I started reporting my own pieces. And I was like, well, where can I do this for a living? Um, And I interned down at WLRN, the NPR affiliate station for South Florida. And the station covers from Jupiter and Palm Beach County all the way to Key West. And I loved it. It was a magical, transformative summer. And I was just doing my very favorite thing every day. So I was like, whoa, could you hire me? And I had to wait for an opening. There were, I was watching and waiting like a hawk. Um, and I worked at an online newsletter in Miami for the first few months out of college. Then there was an opening because WLRN wanted to hire a Broward County specific reporter. And that was, I started that job right away in October, 2017. Um, and four and a half years later, here I am. Um, I just recently transitioned out of covering Broward County after four years and transitioned into the role of producing WLRN's daily show called Sundial. And that's a whole, we could get into the reporting versus production, but I was ready for a change after four years, I think. Um, And I, I, you know, Parkland played a part in that, I'm sure, if I do some self-examination, but um, I just love the public radio world. And four and a half years later, I can't believe the time where the time has gone. I have actually been on Sundial before. Yes, and it you is have. A, yes, I have. And it is a phenomenal program. Thank you. So kind of piggybacking on that. So a few months into your first professional gig, there's a shooting at my school. And as yeah. the Broward reporter, you and several others um, from your station 
covered the events that unfolded at my school and everything that happened after. So what was it like covering that? And I know that that sounds like such a ridiculous question, but you know, as an outsider, as somebody not from the community, what was it like to cover that? And then what were the assignments that you were given related to MSD? Yeah, um, so on the day of the shooting, it, you know, it was surreal. It was unimaginable. I raced from, uh, I was in Fort Lauderdale and then I ended up getting to Parkland, gosh, probably like four o'clock in the afternoon. And it was funny because I can remember distinctly my news director calling me and, and saying, there's been reports that there's been a shooting at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School. You, sh you should get over there now. And I was like, okay, this is going to be a total fluke. This is just an alarm. We're fine. And as I'm driving over, I realized like I'm going to be stuck in traffic. Then I'm never going to get there. And I panicked and I followed a police officer and a fire truck that were racing in the, in the outside lane. And I just got behind the police officer. I was like, I got to get there. These people, yeah, I got to be there at the scene. Um, and that was my job that day uh, specifically was to interview parents waiting for their children, um, students that had evacuated the campus and they were, you know, looking for their families, um, you know, BSO, any information, any media staging. It was really the breaking news first day kind of story. Um, and it's funny because in hindsight, I think our whole newsroom, I cringe when I listen back to some of that. And I think our whole newsroom has really like, whoa, we would have done that all so differently in hindsight. Um, but the that first day, it had not, I had, could not process what had happened. I was on this crazy, I was running on adrenaline of like, I need to do this, then this, then this, then this, and I got to find people and I got to figure out what happened. Um, and then later that night, my I stayed at a hotel in Parkland to stay nearby. And I just remember my mom calling me and there were, there were, there's phases, right? You have the adrenaline phase of breaking news coverage. Then you have when things start to sink in. And my mom on the phone was like, look, like there are families, their children are not coming home. This is, you know, you need to, you're running at a thousand miles an hour trying to get the best coverage you can. And I understand but like just sit in some silence for a moment and think of like what has just happened. And even then I sort of got it. And then it was really the next day I had been reporting. I reported all night. There was, there were, there was information to find out and research to do. I did not sleep. And then um, it was really the next day. Once the Miami Herald had photos of the victims, I lost it. I was like bawling in my car. I was supposed to cover the fourth vigil of the day the next day. And I just couldn't be composed anymore. Um, and so really the second day stories were all vigils, um, trying to piece together, you know, the in memoriams of who these people were. And, it, and specifically, I remember at one vigil talking to two girls on the cheerleading team and they were remembering one of their classmates. And one of the girls said something like, oh, yeah, you know, he sat four desks over to the right of me. And then I was like picturing 
I mean, my high school that I graduated from in Tallahassee, Florida, was the same size as Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School. I had the same class size, same campus layout, and if you can believe it, the same colors. Um, oh, wow. And I'm just like picturing, you know, I, I knew exactly, I, I was remembering what it was like to be in high school. And I think that's, there's the empathy question there where you can connect too much or you can connect not enough. And that, that was a really hard balance to find. I think that, you know, as someone who teaches journalism, worked in journalism, you know, kind of on the periphery, and then became the subject of all of those interviews and stories, there was a huge difference for me, and I know that we're going to touch on this later, but there was a huge difference for me between the local coverage and the national coverage. And I will say, with the exception, <clears throat> excuse me, with the exception of your reporting and Jessica Bakeman and anyone I spoke to from WLRN, the rest of the local coverage was not great. And it was it was upsetting for me because this is our story like this is where we live and i found that a certain newspaper that shall remain nameless was just so awful in their reporting and didn't you know they were just looking for the story instead of looking at us like we were people you know, and almost like ambulance chasers. And I found that the national coverage was so much more, um, I don't wanna say personal, but they were so much more empathetic to us, I guess because they've done this so many times in so many other Gosh. horrible situations. That's so you know? sad. It shouldn't be that way. It is. And no, I completely agree. And I remember, um, I guess it must have been June of 18. Um, I spoke at the National Hispanic Journalism Association Conference in Miami. And I told them the exact same thing. And they were Hispanic reporters from Spanish language papers and stations and just Hispanic reporters from English papers and stations. Um, but I told them the same thing, you know, you have to, like your mom said, like you have to be mindful, like these people lost children, like the, it was a yeah. traumatic experience. And I think that so many reporters get so wrapped up in getting the story that it doesn't matter how they do it and how accurate or inaccurate it might be. And the reporting that you did and that Jessica did was just, it was so wonderful at the local level because those were the stories. You know, you weren't just out there chasing us down. You know, I have to put something in tonight for the show. Like, I remember I met with Jessica 
the following week at the um, CNN Town Hall. And we sat outside of the BB&T Center, which is now called something else, where the Florida Panthers play. And, you know, she sat there with me with all of her, you know, her fuzzy mic and her equipment and everything. And she sat there and, like, took the time to ask me very well-thought questions and listen to what I had to say. And, you know, of course, Katie, you've done the same. But, you know, like, that makes the difference when you're a week out, four years out, 20 years out from trauma, you know, remembering that we are real people who went through something. And that was a huge issue that I had with local coverage versus like national coverage. So I appreciate all the work that you've done. Thank you, Sarah. I'm glad that your experience has been a positive one because it takes one bad experience to really ruin your, your perception, your consumption, your interaction with media. And it's funny because I can see how a lot of reporters can fall into this trap of like, okay, I have a deadline. I have, you know, maybe they're not in tune with their news director or their managers. Maybe they have a big staff and they feel lost. I'm not sure, but you know, either it's too scary and hard to connect. So we're just going to bulldoze and get the story because there's not a lot of training. Um, that's changing, which is a good thing. But at the time it was like, whoa, who's doing this? Well, almost no one. Um, and then, you know, you also have that piece of journalism, especially with some people parachuting in um, or some people that just, you know, they're, they're focused on the aggress- aggression. You, you got to pick an angle mm-hmm. to a story like this, right? So I can see how reporters can get sucked into that. But you do. You need someone. You need, whether it's your mom or photos or whatever, to be like, whoa, you have to sit in how uncomfortable this is because it's supposed to be really, really uncomfortable. And yeah. if you fly by that, you are going to do callous work that hurts people. Um, and there are definitely reporters, like anytime they reach out to me, I'm in. Like you, Jessica, Ari Odzer from Channel 6. Like, yeah, he's good. you know, I've got national people I know at the New York Times and other places, and I'm not trying to name drop, but like, you know, anytime certain people reach out, I'm in. But there are definitely local stations and local papers that I will have have had nothing to do with and don't want to have anything to do with just because of what I saw in the immediate and in the, you know, weeks following, it just was bad journalism. And that's, that's a shame because it's, you know, being here, it's their story to tell, you know, they should be able to cover it in a way that CNN, MSNBC, the Washington Post can't because they're not in this community. Well, that's sort of how WLRN felt. We had a lot of editorial meetings in the days after the shooting where it was like, okay, there's a lot of people here. There's a lot of media outlets. What's our place? What can we do that other outlets can't? Or what can we focus on? Um, And there were sort of two avenues we took with that, which I'm really proud of. And, And it makes me really proud to be a part of the station and the work we did because the ultimate decision was, you know, in the first few weeks 
public resource. Like, okay, here's where you can get mental health counseling. It's like that classic public service journalism of like, it's not a narrative, but it's what you need to know to get some help. Mm -hmm. Then the shift really went into like, what's our angle on this going to be in a year, two years, three years, 10 years. And the conclusion we came to was really like healing and the mental health focus. Um, That's not something that newspapers can do really well, or they certainly weren't choosing to do around us very, very much. Um, And, you know, there certainly there's, there's criminal prosecution angle. There's, a whole host of different angles. And we just thought like, okay, what story are people from the community going to need and want in six months or two years? You know, these, these acts, the foundations that pop up, the positive Mm -hmm. things that people are doing to remember their loved ones and the therapy that's progressed, you know, with organizations like Parkland cares has done Mm -hmm. amazing things. And like, that's, that's worth talking about. Um, So that was really, I'm proud we focused on that. All right, Katie, you gave some really straight answers. Uh, of course, we would expect that from a, a news person. But uh, you mentioned something I found uh, very interesting, and I want to, you to expand on it more. Uh, you said when, speaking both of yourself personally and when the, the, the uh, staff and management got back together, Three they talked about... editors. Sorry. That's okay. We'll do it again. Sorry. That's okay. All right, Katie... Um, Thank you for those uh, answers. And, you know, tonight we're going to rely on the fact that uh, you are a journalist and journalism has a specific role in these tragic events. Um, And one of the things that I I thought was interesting, I want you to expand on it somewhat if you'd be so kind to do that, is you spoke about uh, you and management and staff getting together as this is breaking. And for anyone who I was a journalist, as people in the show know there's a there's a you really don't have a lot of time to think sometimes the story's breaking and, and you know and then that's very important I think the word uh, the big word that people use and it is appropriate is reflection and yeah. uh, and that's really you have some time to reflect back on it. and you said and I think that's a very honest answer and I think all of us would do that you said something about you know you and I'm assuming you were saying you personally or maybe the whole station would do some things differently so could you take us through some of your thoughts about what you might do you know hopefully you'll never encounter this again but if you did, uh, what did you mean by you would do some things differently? Yeah, um, I and certainly I think I'll speak from what I would have done differently from a personal standpoint. Mm-hmm. I think the station is, is and should be proud of its collective coverage. But it was interesting that day, like it was it was a little bit of a balance between it was me and my beat. But I was so young and new that every the whole and it was such a massive event that the entire newsroom, everyone from every beat had dropped what they were doing and everyone was helping out with a different piece of this story. Um, So certainly it was not just me by any standard, Um, but we did have this time. And it's funny, I think the first time I thought, oh, man, I would do that differently was I listened back to those first newscasts the day the shooting happened about nine or 10 months later. And I had spoken to a couple of students that had evacuated the campus and they were in shock. And why would you like, I, I just, I think back to talking to them now and I'm like, I should have just talked to them without the recorder. And I regret airing their voices that day, even though they were older than 18 and you know, all the, all the ethical stuff. Um, But I just, you know, listening back to their accounts of escaping, running away, 
what they saw, you know, their fear for their friends that they saw in horrible positions. And I'm just like, you know, it was irresponsible of me to that was, you know, that was part of the adrenaline, I think, right, that that surge to get the story. But looking back, I'm like, I would never have put their voices on the radio that day. Um, and I, I talked to a father who was waiting for his daughter, but he'd been able to text her. She was one of the students that was um, still in the school waiting for, you know, SWAT teams to clear the school so that they could leave. But it, that took hours and hours and hours. And his father was texting his daughter. Um, and so he knew she was okay, but you know, I'm just standing there talking to him. And I, that was, I don't think I put that on the radio, but he was like, just beside himself. Um, and so it's just interesting. The, the I think the way I would have approached people and had those very first initial conversations would have been different because people are in shock. And it's like, you know, they just, it's not the same. You can't do that to somebody. Um, and then I thinking back to some of my first conversations in those first few days as well and first few weeks, I would have, um, yeah, approached people differently. I think now my biggest my biggest learning point in what I do always from now on that I wish I'd started with, but it, it's the approach in interviews that are related to trauma of like making sure the person you're interviewing knows that they're in control of the interview because I'm only going to get what you want to tell me and whatever you don't want to tell me, that's fine. We can do the story without it. It's like the person being interviewed needs to know that they have a free pass. If I ask you something that you're uncomfortable answering, you don't have to explain yourself to me. You know, you, you have the free pass card and we move on. Um, and I, I feel like that's just so much of a better way to start an interview with someone. Um, it puts you both on this like equal plane where the person being interviewed is like, oh, I don't have to be afraid to tell this, you know, this person I don't know very well that I don't like her question. And I feel like everyone should have that kind of control, no matter, you know, trauma or not, but it's especially important for trauma. And I think it goes back to that theory too of like, do no harm. I'm not here doing an interview ever to make you relive something traumatic or, um, you know, to cause you pain. And if it's not good for your mental health, it's not good for the story. So I, I, I'm never gonna go back down that road. Um, Cause so many people, and, and it's happened to me once on live air as well, Oh, take me back to that day. Tell me everything about that day. Where were you? What did it smell like? Were you sweaty? Like all these little details that come racing back to your mind. And when you're on live radio, I was like, I was floored. And I was only, you know, I was only on the sidelines, right? So imagine how somebody would feel a part of that event that gets sidelined like that. Of course, you're going to hate reporters after that. And I, I guess I always approach it too from, the perspective of would I ever want to answer my own questions? Like if somebody approached me at a funeral and was like, ah, yes, tell me why we should remember your cousin. I would be like, screw you. You know, <laughs> well, who are you to run up to me at a funeral? Um, and covering funerals is the hardest thing anybody can do, but I'm a firm believer that every reporter should cover a funeral at least once um, because that is like your fast track learning class to empathy if you didn't have it before. Um, and it's, it's interesting that like, I remember I covered four funerals in five days 
it, it's excruciating. And, um, you know, I did it all different ways, right? Whether you're in the parking lot and you're like, I am so sorry to bother you. We're just trying to remember the person that we lost. You know, did he love basketball? Like, what can you tell me about how we can remember this person? Even if you're coming from a good place, you're going to get a few people going, F you, lady. Um, and honestly, we deserve it. And it depends on the context and how you interact with those people. But I am just such a firm believer that every reporter should be humbled like that once because it is the hardest thing you will ever do in this job. Um, and I have the relationship with my, my management and my news director. I think we were all in such a daze after that happened that, you know, when my news director found out I had covered four funerals in five days, he was like, oh, my God, you know, where's your where's your PTO that we can't have that we need to rotate people in for you. And not all newsrooms have that. So I'm really lucky in that sense as well. But it's, you know, that's, that's a, that's really where I saw some shady journalism happen. And that was the hardest part of that process. Um, but that's like where you, you are either good or you're not, you can either be empathetic, or you're going to go pretend you're a mourner in there. I don't think so. Um, so that that there's a lot of, of weird nuance there. Um, Sarah, this is one of the nice things is, even though we're podcasting partners, uh, we can ask each other questions when it's Jermaine. And yes. so this is going to be directed to you, and then I'll follow up something uh, with Katie. But, uh, you know, you said about uh, always remembering for journalists, uh, real people with real stories going through this. And I think it's not only important for journalists to know that, but it's important for everybody who encounters that story, right? Um, mm-hmm. You know, as I, I kind of laughed earlier uh, when we were talking, you know, this is kind of interesting interview for me because I've had both your jobs and done them <laughs> a lot longer than, well, yeah, longer than either of you did yours. Uh, <laughs> different though, different world. Dinosaurs, we fought them off and all that kind of thing. But the idea of it is, Sarah, is could you just address that a little bit uh, from maybe both standpoints? You know, how, because it would be great. It would be marvelous if Katie never had to cover anything like this again. And no other teacher in America would ever have to go through what almost all the teachers who come on this podcast have to. But we, we're not there yet. Okay? So you're kind of talking about this idea of uh, respect, I guess. So could you pick up on mm-hmm. that just a little bit, Sarah? Yeah, I think Katie touched on it a bit where, you know, being mindful of, as a reporter being mindful of your uh, situation and your surroundings. Like at a funeral, certain people might not be willing to talk to you, but then there are people who are and being respectful of that space and those people is a huge thing. I remember um, I was going to the vigil at Pine Trails Park the day after the shooting. And there was a local reporter from a paper that shall remain nameless, who like followed me and two other teachers for like a mile, because we had to park so far away. Like, he just wanted to interview us for the story. And we're like, just looking at each other like, listen, buddy, like we've got We've got bigger fish to fry. Like, I don't have time for this right now. Oh, can I give you my card? Like, no, we're not doing this right now. 
And like, that's the whole ambulance chaser thing. Like you see people who are clearly in Stoneman Douglas clothing or, you know, insert school or city here, don't chase them down if they're not interested in talking to you. And again, as not only a, a survivor, but a journalist and journalism teacher, you know, that's journalism 101. Like if somebody doesn't want to talk to you, thank you anyway. Like, you know, sometimes we do take no for an answer. And I, I think it's just remembering those things. Like, yes, we went through something. Yes, we are the people you want to talk to and you need to talk to to do those stories. But you have to be respectful and mindful that not everyone wants to do an interview. I will talk to anyone and have talked to just about everyone. And it doesn't bother me. It's helpful for me. But there are so many people who still don't talk about it really with anyone, let alone reporters. And, you know, just be respectful of that. Like if someone isn't comfortable talking to you, it's nothing personal. They're just not in that place. And I think that there are journalists out there who misrepresent the profession by doing things like that. And it's, it's unfortunate because we know the battle that journalism faced with the last administration and fake news and the enemy of the people and all of that, well, it's people who are doing the wrong thing who live up to that stereotype instead of, you know, the, the poster children for journalism being people like Katie and the good reporters out there. It's, you know, these assholes who are just chasing you down for an interview. No. Katie, since we have you on, kind of follow up on that. Uh, first of all, you were the local reporter, uh, but interesting enough for anybody who uh, thinks you had done it for 25 years and had established your sources, I believe you said uh, four months, is that correct? Yeah, it, the shooting happened four months into me covering Broward. And that's a pretty quick introduction, um, as you've pointed out so well. That's a tough story. They're always tough stories. Uh, and Sarah, you were talking about kind of the difference between local coverage and national coverage. And mm -hmm. it's not like it's all that different. I mean, it is, but you have, uh, Katie used the word empathetic reporting, and it's needed now more than ever uh, with the way that the country is fractured and people are suffering from just about everything imaginable. But Katie, uh, you saw this big, almost every, re well, I guess reporters, I, I don't know, Sarah, I know they were from all over America, I assume at some point, maybe even the world, uh, you know, it was a, that oh, big, yeah. that yeah, big, yeah. big, 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 biggest story. Oh, no. Interviews oh, yeah. BBC and Good Morning Britain. And, uh, yeah. and this, you know, unfortunately, uh, there'll be people killed tonight, young people killed tonight in Washington, D.C., but they won't be uh, in a school and school shootings still, you know, kind of grab the limelight. And you would think after some of them that we would stop and we will someday, but just not yet. So, Katie, if you could just address a little bit what that's like. And, and you're, you're looking as a journalist, but you're the, the local reporter. And you're seeing all these national people and not to trash them or anything, but just to say, uh, because someday, yeah, you know, you won't get a local story. So, you know, what did you see? Uh, 
uh, oh, man. along those lines? When I was, I was fresh out of journalism school. So I had the textbook in my mind of like, I'm supposed to do this and we are supposed to act this way. And you just see a lot of reporters. It didn't really matter, local, national, um, doing things that I was just like, whoa, you cannot put someone on live TV without their consent, especially if they are a minor, let alone in the middle of an emergency. Um, so things like that really, I, I, that's something you could see outwardly and go, oh, no. Um, but I think too, I, I hadn't built up any sources in that part of Broward County. I'd really focused when I first started on, you know, trying to meet with county commissioners and look at city commissions. Um, I had not been up to Parkland except for like one time before the shooting happened. Um, because Broward has 31 municipalities. I was making my way and then this happens and you really have to redirect your focus. Um, and I remember looking out and one of the um, reporters there at the time, also a local reporter, she was a year or two older than me. And this was her third or fourth mass shooting that she'd covered. She'd covered Pulse. She had covered, you know, a whole, uh, the, the Fort Lauderdale inter, um, airport shooting. Um, and I just thought to myself, whoa, not only was there not a class on how to cover trauma and tragedy and emergencies in journalism school, there wasn't even a chapter in a textbook on how to prepare to cover trauma. And it, covering trauma and talking to people who are going through a traumatic experience is not like talking to somebody for any other purpose. It's not like talking to an author who wrote a book. It's not like talking to a, a politician. None of the same rules apply. And, and so I think it was sort of my approach from the beginning was, whoa, all these people are going to leave. They might leave in a month. They might leave in six months, but they're going to leave and I will be left. So I need to be very wise about how uh, none of my reach outs in the beginning were for interviews. It was like, hey, I'm Katie. I just want to introduce myself. I'm here. And whenever you feel like talking, even if it's in six months, you can call me if you want. And I think that that I'm really grateful that I did that just from the perspective of I was not out to make enemies um, because, you know, you think about, the, you know, the teachers in your community they're a wealth of knowledge and for a whole host of stories, not just trauma related stories. Right. I mean, you want to, you don't want to piss off the teachers. You want to know what's going on in the classroom for, for 6,000 different reasons. Um, and so it was just sort of like a, let me, let me build friends and, and try to just see how people are. And then when they're ready, they'll come back. Um, and that, that's what happened a lot. And I, I would recommend that for any journalist in that situation of like, never make your first conversation with somebody the ask for the interview. Right. Hi, microphone. No, like make the third or fourth conversation the ask for the interview. Uh, obviously, uh, one of the reasons uh, we do this podcast, well, I should say that Sarah set up the podcast and lets me come along. Uh, but we do share something that we think America uh, is definitely on a wrong path with guns. Uh, but as you were saying that, I was thinking, I, I did teach journalism in college for five years, and uh, we're not there yet, but I hope we never get to the idea. Uh, I think the trauma idea is good, I think it'll come in, but could you imagine if you become a specialist and you know on, on gun violence? I mean, you know, that really is another indictment. Of, uh, of America and the way they stand on guns. Uh, a little bit in general, 
I always found people interesting. They want to know all the facts, but then, uh, and they want to know all the, uh, you know, they want to know how do you feel and all that, the people, and then they get angry <laughs> when uh, reporters try to do that. And it's a, it's, sometimes it's a thankless, thankless task. And then uh, Sarah mentioned in you too about this idea now, uh, which I didn't encounter when I was a reporter back in the 70s and 80s, uh, the idea of fake news. And uh, so again, the thing that I'm thinking about is not so much the fake news that comes out of, I mean, I don't find it coming out of journalism. I find it coming out of others. Like, I mean, it's it's inconceivable to me that there are still uh, people who are calling false flag at some of the shooting incidents, you know, uh, that this is made up and they were actors. I think Sarah, well, they talked about David and Emma and the, the people oh, who yeah, rose. Absolutely. And, and they talked, but then at Sandy Hook. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. So, um, just, you know, I guess to you, Katie, this question goes, um, do you, th- <laughs> okay. Do you think in general, uh, that the reporting that you see in the broad base, right? Whether it's about a school shooting or anything is relatively accurate. And so others are describing it. And what I see, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, but what I see and I've seen for a while is. Uh, the new definition of fake news is I don't agree with what that is or I don't like it as a politician, and so I'm going to label it fake news. So either in regards to school shootings or tragedies or just general, everybody's talking about fake news. Where does Katie stand on that? So I read a book that changed my life. It changed my perspective. That wasn't a book that I wrote, was it? No. (laughs) (laughs) But it changed the way I thought about everything. And I'm not afraid to say like media is a part of the problem. Um, And we have to look inward at ourselves because we are not blameless. But uh, the book is called Why We're Polarized or Why We're So Polarized by Ezra Klein, the founder of Vox. And really the idea that we have so many options and we can get news from anywhere we want that we align with. It's, it's become so much more of our identity. And I really, that clicked for me because, and this is a small tangent, but I think it's worthwhile. I covered the 2016 Republican National Convention in Cleveland, Ohio. My condolences. <laughs> I, I knew something was forever different in the profession. This was before fake news. This was before that really had entered the zeitgeist, but only by like a few weeks. And um, I remember being in the arena and, oh, I have, just to pause for a moment. I hope you can't hear the puppy crying. Can you hear her? No, but I'm going to make that. That'll be the lead. Puppy cries. Uh, <laughs> teacher teacher from Parkland. Insensitive journalist. No, no, not that. Oh, Sarah, I'm going to blame you. Uh, bad enough, Sarah's own puppy cries, but now she can make other puppies cry. Let me get up. That's true. Let me get up. Ruby's in the It's a little bit of a tangent, but I was covering the 2016 Republican National Convention in Cleveland, Ohio, just just before fake news really became a word that we were all using in the zeitgeist. Um, And I will I I use it as an example because there was a moment in the arena right before um, Donald Trump comes on stage that everyone in the arena pointed to the media pen where all the journalists were. And that was like the first, you know insert chant of your choice here, CNN sucks, boo, you know, enemy of the people. And I just remember thinking to myself, like, oh, 
I thought this profession was going to be fun and nobody's, nobody's going to like that I'm doing this. Like that was my first indication that this was not a respected career in the eyes of the average American is what it felt like. Um, and that framework helped a little bit after the Parkland shooting because I had, it, it sort of gave me a little bit of an armor to prepare for. And, you know, I have my responses and local journalism matters and all of those things. But I had a Spanish teacher about three months after the Parkland shooting, I was trying to learn Spanish. And she asked me, why are you still reporting on any Parkland stories? It's so sad. Nobody wants to be sad. And that was the argument. It wasn't even like a real fake news argument. It was like a don't bring me down man kind of argument. And that was something I was not prepared for. I was prepared for her to pretend it was a fake, you know, red flag operation, whatever you want to call it. And I had all my responses ready. And I was like, no, this is, you can't question, why would anyone make this up? You know, and, and there was so much, you know, people were there, like, there's no debate as to whether or not this was real or fake. And I just wasn't prepared for the, hey, I don't want to be sad. And it, that really tipped me off to like, oh, okay, so there's plenty of people out here that believe it's real. But they cannot remotely face it and they're they're done being sad they would rather be ignorant um and that has informed a little bit you know it, it it's informed future stories in the sense that i'm like okay it's not about making a listener happy or sad but there is an element there of like the wlrn angle comes back to me of like our coverage was based on how do you move forward um and I think that has been what has kept me going over the past four years in that sense of, I know that I'm not just reflecting on one horrible day, but you have to look forward. How do we get justice? How do we heal? How do we, as a community, as families, as a school, where's the growth? What can come of this? Um, and I think if you look at it that way, there's a lot of really beautiful things that wouldn't make anybody sad, right? You know, it, there's, there's so much there there's such a sad basis behind it, but there's a lot of hope and you have to, you have to be willing to see the sad, to see the hope. So I know what you've covered, like directly related to February 14th, but there have been other stories and kind of extended coverage related to my school and the students and, you know, then extending that out to all of those kids and COVID and, you know, being online and all of that. So I would love it if you would share some of the like extended, extended coverage you've done related to the incident, but not directly, if that makes any sense. Yeah. And I think a lot of that, it was really interesting when we started to think about the pandemic. Um, well, for my, my favorite people to talk to from Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in a tangential way are you know, your student athletes and then your student journalists, because they both have such a different perspective. And you don't have to be asking them about something related to the shooting, but it is interesting to sit back and when you're talking about somebody's sports season, the shooting comes up somehow. And then in those moments, you've got to roll with it a little bit. Uh, but for Jessica was the, Jessica Bakeman, um, my colleague, was the editor on WLRN's project called Class of COVID-19. 
And we worked with public radio stations around the whole state of Florida. And my piece of it that I was, I was really honored to do. And of course you were a part of it, Sarah, um, as my source turned friend, but, uh, <laughs> but this idea of, wait a minute, everyone at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas had been trying to get back to some semblance of normalcy and be together. You had, everyone had the routine. And when you're healing from trauma, routine is so important. Um, and then the pandemic hits and you can't see each other. Routine, be damned, everything's gone. And the, there were no rules again. And I, I was interested in the parallels of the pandemic to the aftermath of the shooting, but also, you know, certainly it was triggering for a lot of students and teachers. And then there's this aftermath of, in some ways, you were better prepared for a lot of that than people who had not experienced trauma. So that story as a part of the bigger project was so fulfilling to do as we're all going through this COVID thing together, whatever the COVID thing really was for each person. But, um, but it was, it's just really interesting to hear from teachers and students of, you know, your own triggers and, and how the pandemic had opened those up and then your advice for everybody on how to get through it and, and those trauma healing techniques. It was so interesting in that way. And then there was also my one of my favorite stories, um, the yearbook, the yearbook that almost wasn't um, yeah. during the pandemic. And it was the Marjorie Stoneman Douglas, um, you know, your airy yearbook staff uh, having to put together a yearbook when the whole world had shut down, just kind of like how you had to scrape together and get a yearbook out after the shooting. Um, and mm -hmm. there were so many parallels there too, but it was really beautiful to hear these students talk about like the last photos they took and what meant, what was significant to them and what they lost. Because really, if you look at the students that were there for the shooting and then they were there for COVID, they didn't have a high school experience. I was just going to say that. They were robbed completely of any semblance of normalcy. Yes. Um, and they lost a lot, you know, we're not just talking a prom or a homecoming, although those things do matter to a high school experience, but we're talking about just like seeing your friends, um, you know, connecting with those teachers, having those after school clubs that mean something to you, you know, and, and I just wonder, I think my biggest question is like, how do we follow those kids? How do we make sure those kids in 15 or 20 years are okay? Because they're not okay and it's okay to not be okay but how do we how do we follow them um, in the sense of like, you know, they're going to do good things. Mm -hmm. um, so it's, know, fun. It's, it's, it's fun in, in some sense, or I guess healing for me to do those stories because it's almost like a full circle. It's like, hey, that that coverage, you know, you can always improve. You don't have to hold yourself to one interview you felt went badly or you wished you'd said something different or, you know, you can constantly be rebuilding those relationships and talk about this, this, this isn't going to go away. Gun violence in schools has not even remotely gone away. Well, I appreciated that you did the COVID series as part of the bigger statewide project and, you know, took a look at the yearbook, putting it together for the 20 book kind of compared to the 2018 book. But these kids, I mean, none of us have had a normal four years. And the the 
18, 19 school years, the first full year back after the shooting was just awful for all of us. And then the 1920 school year, we really felt like we were like getting back to normal, whatever that meant, and like hitting our stride. And we were, you know, just doing our thing. And then boom, COVID. And you're right. It put a lot of kids and a lot of teachers in a really bad place. And these kids who, I, you know, I've said it before, they're all over 18 and adults now, but none of them had a normal high school experience, specifically the kids who were freshmen that day, because the older grades had some normalcy in high school, but like the class of uh, 21 had nothing normal except the first semester of freshman year and nothing about freshman year is is normal or exciting and figuring out who you are who you want to be exactly i mean listen there are adults who still don't know who they want to be but it was so hard to watch as the teacher but to you know to be able to hear their stories which i wasn't there when you spoke with uh, I think it was Eden and Nicole, yeah. you know, to hear their stories and they were so honest and candid and, and truthful. It was, it's something that people need to see, but this goes back to that humanizing of your story. You know, like these are real people who are going through a real situation. In this case, it was COVID something everyone could relate to, but let's be honest everybody can relate to something with gun violence. Even if it hasn't happened to you, you know someone or it's, you know, in your town or, you know, for you, even Caitlin, like reporting on it, you weren't there per se, but you were there entrenched in it. And, you know, that's where these stories come in. And I'm, I'm glad that you've been able to extend the coverage not because we, you know, need 15 minutes of fame, but these are stories that people need to hear. This is what comes after, you know. Well, if you think about our country, everyone is going to be dealing with the what comes after at different stages, right? There oh, absolutely. are towns that are four years behind Parkland and, mm -hmm. you know, they're going to want to know what does four years out look like. Yeah. Um, and I've, I mean, unfortunately, I am part of the shittiest club in America, but, you know, I've become very good friends with Amy Stevens, who we have had on our show. She's a teacher at Oxford High School. And, you know, I hope that I can be a support and, you know, a source of comfort and strength for her in the way that Abby Clements from Sandy Hook has been for me, you know, and I can look at Abby, who's five years ahead of me, much in the way that Amy can look as I'm almost four years ahead of her. But listening to Amy's story and listening to Abby's story, it's the same as mine. It's just a different year and it's a different city, but it's the same story. And that's why you know, Dave and I do what we do. And I'm glad that you, Katie, have continued 
you're reporting on this in different ways because these are the stories people need to hear so that you know you are not alone in what you're feeling because it can feel very isolating that nobody you know nobody gets it we all do because we've been through something like this and it's you know it's comforting in a very screwed up way wow so i want to touch on how you how do you take care of yourself and your mental health because i know your concern is you know being respectful and mindful of those you're interviewing but you must need to be wrung out at the end of the day also after listening to these stories and covering everything so how do you take care of yourself and your mental health after such important but such heavy horrible stories yeah it's that's a journey it's it, I am not where I started. Um, and I struggled with an anxiety disorder before Parkland. Um, and so I knew I was prone to, you know, panic attacks and all of that kind of stuff. But I, I really, I think one way you put it actually, Sarah, and it's, it's interesting to say this, it, it felt very isolating. You know, I felt like I could come home and at the time, you know, whether it was my boyfriend, uh, my now husband, or, um, you know, his family or my friends, like they did not understand what I meant when, what I meant when I said, Hey, like I spent all day in Parkland today. And I spent all day in Parkland every day for two months. Um, and right after the shooting, you know, we worked for, I think it was like 14 days straight before I had a day off. And you are in you are in go 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 mode. Like I will do the best that I can. And then when you stop, I for me it hit at a couple of different moments. I would say for the first six months after the shooting, I would just cry in my car all the time. Like random moments. I hear a song I love on the radio. I'm I'm waterworks. And I can't really put my finger on it other than like I just felt like I was only a few years older than these kids. Um, and I did go to a high school that was so similar. I could, I could see myself in their shoes. I could see my classmate or my friend, you know, I, I could see it. Um, and at the first day back at school for Marjorie Stoneman Douglas, all the reporters were there and, and I'm going to disagree with that on a few levels, but you know, for better or worse, I was one of them. Um, and I remember this security guard like one of the BSO agents who was helping mm -hmm. kids cross the street, he thought I was a student and he grabs me <laughs> and he hugged me and he said, you are so brave. Welcome back. Aww. And I, I was like, Oh my God, I'm not the one I'm, I'm so sorry. And it's, there's, there's a guilt there. There's a guilt there for a few layers. Um, the first layer is, you know, I'm guilty for being sad because I don't have a right to be sad because I didn't lose my child or my friend. Then there's a guilt of like, you know, when you hear a song you love on the radio, I think this is what would make me cry in the car, but there's that guilt of like, whoa, I am alive to hear this song and they are not. Like they didn't get a prom, they're not going to college, and here I am where they should be. And that's a weird, that's, it's a, it's a little bit of a weird feeling and I really held that for a long time. Um, and of course, you know, you get a good therapist and you talk that through and you're like, wait, I don't have to carry that. And I don't have to carry that by myself. 
but I can still be sad about it. And then there's this tendency, you know, with the guilt and feeling like people don't understand and then feeling like you don't have a right to be upset, but you're still in it all the time. And I, I treasure some of the saddest interviews I've ever had because, you know, like with Eden and Nicole, mm -hmm. those, those just stay in your heart forever. Like you feel the purpose in them. You're like, I'm not doing this in vain. And I think that's a real big empowerment to mental health. As long as I believed in the story that I was doing, it was for a purpose. And one of my, one of my favorite, one of the stories that I'm most proud of because of the way I structured it, it's kind of like a technical audio thing. But um, I knew that I was leaving the, the Broward reporter beat after four years, um, staying with WLRN and just moving into a different role. And I was looking forward to not having to cover the trial. Um, and I covered the plea change that day. And I talked to some parents and my news director called me and I'm filling him in. I'm like, okay, I'm composed. This, 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 this happened. I'm coming back. And I hang up the phone and I'm sobbing in, in, in the courthouse, like just holding that parent's anger and my own anger. Um, and my news director called back. He'd forgotten to tell me something. And I was able to be composed for that few minutes on the phone. And then he, you know, when he called back, it was like, oh, okay. You know, it, it's, I'm okay with being softer now. Like I was okay with letting somebody know like, nah, I'm affected today. That's okay. Um, and that was a big deal. And I think the way that story ended up, you don't hear the shooter's name and you don't hear what they had to say in court that day. You hear the parents coming in and reminding you of why they're there. Mm -hmm. And I was just really proud of the way that we put that on the radio. And I can juxtapose that to four years ago when I, you know, put those kids voices on the radio that were in shock. Um, and I can say, whoa, at least I, be you know, if I believe in it, it's cathartic, it's got a purpose, it'll inform somebody. Um, even if it informs me, and I feel like thinking through now, I mean, thank God I do have a, a wonderful therapist. Um, but there's that sense of you don't have to carry it all. And you can use some of that institutional knowledge to help another young reporter do it better than you did. And that's been very empowering as well. I had my coworker on the day of the shooting, I'll never forget, she called me Sammy Mack, our, mm -hmm. our former healthcare reporter. Yep. And she just called me and said, I'm so sorry, this is going to be your beat for the next five years. And she knew, and I didn't know yet. And then I talked to a reporter who'd covered Sandy Hook. And at the time, when I talked to her, Sandy Hook was five years out. And she explained to me what her, her life was like, what she was going through. And I was like, oh, I didn't sign up for this. I don't, I don't want this. This is hard. And then you're in it. And you're like, wait. I'm proud of the stories I'm doing. I'm, I'm just going to stay in it. Um, so that's, that's where I've come full circle to. Thanks for listening. Tune in every week for a new episode. Remember, you can find our podcast on teachersunify.transistor.fm or on Amazon, Apple, Google, and Spotify. Please follow us on Twitter and Instagram at teachersunifypc and online at teachersunified.org.